So my name is Andy and I'm on staff here now. Uh, I've been here for a few weeks and really excited to be here. In fact, it's just been a crazy season of transitions for us as a family. And, uh, and it's been interesting as we, I spent the last year in California working at an internship, much as we had one here this last year with Ben and now Laura is here for the year. And really in that season, just trying to figure out as I'm wrapping up seminary and been working in ministry for a few years, what's next? And started praying, talking to God, trying to figure this stuff out. And I had some great conversations uh, with John and God worked out the details for us to be here. We're really exciting. But I am so thankful to be on the end of this transition and this side. So in the last month, this is just a sense of what the Hermansons have been going through, okay? So I wrapped up an internship, which I actually passed, which was great. All right, yes, woo! It's always, it's always good when you don't have to start over. All right. Uh, we moved all of our earthly possessions from Los Angeles back to Des Moines, didn't lose anything, didn't get any speeding tickets. And my wife and the kids flew on airplanes, uh, which, which was very uh, helpful for them not to have to drive for 24 hours. But our, our, we did all of this unexpectedly when we left to go to Los Angeles for a year from Iowa. We ended up finding out that we're going to have a little baby. And, and the timing was just great. It was like two weeks after we were supposed to get back here, we're going to be uh, having our third child. And so Violet is here. She came last week. We're very excited about that. I'm um, going on about four hours of sleep tonight, but uh, it's very good. And I've even started my last seminary class. So to make through all of those transitions, I mean, in the last month, it's been exhausting. And people look at me and they say, well, wh how are you handling all this? Are you making it through? Is it working out? And I say, well, actually... I'm kind of a nerd, if I can be honest with you guys for a moment here, and I love seasons of life like that where, where the pressure is on, where there's things to do, because it forces you to plan, and planning for some reason, getting in the details and figuring out how all this stuff is going to work is something that I'm really into, and I love it. This is an old A-team quote, but I love it when plans come together. Any A-team fans out there back in the day? Absolutely. I especially love it when plans come together for exciting adventures. And so I want to start this morning by telling you about an exciting adventure that I had the opportunity to go on. The year was 2005, all right? And I was living in Seattle at the time, and my wife and I decided we wanted to go back to the place we met, which was Glacier National Park in the northwest corner of Montana. And if you ask me, I mean, Iowa, it's a beautiful state. But Montana in the mountains, it is God's country. If you've been there, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And I've been working for months to get this plan together, to get all the details, to get the right permits, to make sure we have the right gear, that we tell people where we're going so we don't get lost in the woods and nobody knows where we went. I had all these details and we were so stoked. To say that I was stoked is an understatement. I was elated. I was so excited to go and we got there and we hit the trail. And what started out as this great adventure that I've been looking forward to for months... Well, it kind of turned into a disaster. Now, maybe it was the fact that we got there after dark. Okay, we're hiking through wilderness with wild animals, and we got there after dark. Maybe it was the fact, because I'd been a raft guide, I was used to packing a little bit more food. I packed enough food for 25 people to survive two weeks in the woods. That's 60 pounds on my back. We're going to try and go 20 miles. That's a, lot, that's a lot of weight. Maybe it was the fact I made the rookie mistake of buying my boots right before we left and they were trying them on. I got a mile in and I had a blister the size of Cleveland right in the middle of my left foot. Or maybe it was the fact that I had done absolutely no physical training for this adventure in my entire excitement of planning. That was the one thing that I forgot. 
So we're on the trail and we're going and it's dark and we're working. We've got our little dorky headlamps on our heads and we're going down the trail and we're getting to our campsite that night and I was toast. I couldn't even eat anything. My body was just, my stomach was so churned up. And my wife tried to force feed me and that did not go well. And I was frustrated. I was so mad at myself because here is this adventure I'd planned for so intensely. And what was supposed to be this grand escape ended up being the most embarrassing, humbling hike I've ever taken as we turned around and walked back to our car. And I'm pretty sure when we got back to the parking lot, I looked like I was about ready to die. My wife hadn't even broken a sweat. I love it when plans come together. And because of that, I hate it when they don't. Because I laid these plans, but things went crazy because life happens. Now, we've all been in this situation, right? Maybe not hiking in the woods like an idiot like me, but we've all laid plans for our life where we've had some sort of expectation, some sort of understanding of how things are going to go, and it just changes. Let me just knock down a few here. I'm sure some of us were hoping to get a little bit more on our to-do list this week. Was that a plan you had maybe to get some things done didn't happen? All right, I'm pretty sure. Are there any Packer fans in this room? I'm... (laughs) I'm pretty sure some of you were planning on a win last Monday night in Seattle. I don't know, maybe not, maybe not. I'm pretty sure Hawkeye fans expected their team to show up sometime before the fifth game of the season and actually look like they knew what they were doing. All right. But then there are the other plans that we have. Maybe the plans to have a job. Maybe the plans to have a place to live. Maybe the plans to have a family that gets along. Some of us have watched our plans, our hopes, and our dreams float away. And when you try and have a conversation with God about it, all that you get is silence. Have you ever felt like that? When was the last time you felt like that? You felt like the psalmist in Psalm 13 says, he says, Oh Lord, how long will you forget me? He's just letting God have it. How long will you look the other way, God? And how long must I struggle with the anguish in my soul. When was the last time you had no other choice? Life was so rotten that you just let God have it. It's exhausting, isn't it? Worrying about things, struggling to believe that God has a bigger plan, keeping hope alive. And as we walk through this journey and as life has its ups and its downs at different points, I mean, it wears you down. Eventually, you get to your end, and eventually, the questions, the big questions, start to come. God, do you really seriously even care? Why aren't you changing this? God, do you even hear me? Does God really have a plan for my life? Well, thankfully, as we all walk through these situations, and if you're not in that situation right now, if life is good for you, then I say praise God. But if life is tough, if you're looking for God just to even hear his voice, then as we look at this next chapter of the story today, the life of Joseph, if we ask this question, does God have a plan? Does God know what he's doing? Then the answer isn't just yes, it's heck yes. All right, because God is there for his people. Amen? Amen. Amen. God has a plan 
for his people. And you don't believe me? It's in the Bible. I want to show it to you, all right? Let's look up here on the screen. I want you to read Jeremiah 29, 11 with me. Here we go. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. God has a plan for you. May not sound like a big deal now, but in the midst of the darkest nights, the biggest struggles, God having a plan for you, it changes everything. So if you're just joining us and you haven't been around the last few weeks and you're wondering what the story is, John talked about it in the beginning, but we're taking 31 weeks. We're setting aside 31 weeks and we're three weeks in now to look at the big points on the map of the story of the Bible. It's God's story. And we don't want to just read the Bible together. I love what it says up here on the sign. It says, read the story, but it also says to experience the Bible. We want to take this 31-week journey to get to know God and to be changed by Him. All right, so let's take a look at the story. If you have uh, a Bible like this, the first part I want to read this morning, it's, it's the verses that we had uh, just read for us. I want to look at it again. It's not in the story Bible because if you think about this... This is the box of 128 crayons. Did anybody ever have a huge box of crayons growing up? This is more like the 16 or the 32. And so we're trying to kind of work together. But I think it's important as we start and we get to know Joseph, we understand what kind of a guy he was. And we saw this in in the text this morning. So it's on page 31 in your Bible in Genesis 37. It's talking about it. And it says, when Joseph was 17, he offered 10 in his father's flocks. He worked for his brothers, but Joseph reported to his father, some bad things his brothers were doing. Sounds like a likable sibling, doesn't it? All right, here's the kicker in verse three. Jacob loved, that's his dad, Jacob loved Joseph more than any of the other children because Joseph had been born to him in old age. So one day Jacob had a special gift made for Joseph, a beautiful robe, but his brothers hated Joseph because their father loved him more than the rest of him. And one night Joseph has a dream and he tells him uh, and it ends up not going very well because he says, when we were out in the field tying up bundles of grain in my dream, suddenly my bundle stood up and your bundles, your bundles, your bundles all gathered around and bowed down to mine. All right. Joseph is a punk. Absolutely. Absolutely. Is he, he's just the kind of guy you'd love to slap around a little bit just to, just to make him be quiet or go away. He's a narc. He's a know-it-all. He's not the most humble guy you've ever met. How many of you knew somebody like this growing up? Just a sibling or a friend or just somebody just, yeah. Okay. How many of you were this person growing up? Any of you? Yeah. Being an oldest, I can relate to not being the favorite, the spoiled youngest, but that's another story. That's another sermon, so... All right, it'd be really easy for me to sit up here though and throw Joseph under the bus, which maybe I kind of already have this morning. But the thing we got to realize is that Joseph is a product of the world that he lives in, the way that he was raised. People aren't necessarily always like this on their own. It's what they know. It's, it's what they've experienced. So Joseph's acting this way because of the way that he's been parenting. And as we've been reading through God's story the last few weeks, have you found any comfort in looking at God's chosen family? I mean, they put the fun in dysfunctional. 
There's cheating, there's lying, there's manipulation, there's all of these things. Genesis, this book of Genesis, it's not like the nice Christmas letters you get every December if, if you're into writing those or sending those, where it's like, oh, Susie did this, and Joe did this, and it was all perfect, right? No, Genesis is the letter you never want anybody else to ever see. And so we got to ask ourselves, why does God begin to include this? Because the reality is this family, God's chosen family, they are messed up. And this brokenness that they're experiencing comes through this favoritism, this sin of favoritism. Because Joseph has some things to learn. And as we look at this, the way that he manipulates his brothers and he treats you got to wonder, what was God thinking when he chose these people? As a parent of three kids now, I worry about favoritism. And it's one thing to actually say and tell your brothers that, and spend more time with uh, one kid in particular, but to go and to buy a robe? I mean, a robe that looks like that, maybe? Well, some people think it looks like that. I think it might look a little bit more like this, you know, <laughs> a, little, a little Mac Daddy. All right, let's go back to the other picture, right? <laughs> but Joseph's got this attitude, and the father shows favoritism to give the brothers something to be angry about. Every day there's this physical reminder, this visible reminder that they aren't number one in the family. You got to wonder what Jacob was thinking. And so Joseph is this cocky kid. He's this young, spoiled teenager but he keeps having these dreams. And there's something to that. Even his father begins to be a little curious about him. But as he goes to tell everybody about his dreams, nobody wants anything to do with him because of his pride. And pride is something we all struggle with. I could stand up here and I could give you an entire book of the way my pride has gotten in my way. But we see it everywhere we go, right? We hear examples of that. We experience it in ourselves and the people we relate to. Even as I sat down this week, to watch the movie Cars with my kids. This idea of pride slapped me in the face. The main character, Lightning McQueen, he's a race car driver slash car person. It's a cartoon, you know, so the cars talk, right? He's a rookie. He's in his first season. He's got a shot at winning the Piston Cup, which is the dream that he's had his entire life. And there's good news and bad news when you meet Lightning McQueen. The good news is he's a really good driver. And he's got the opportunity to make his wildest dreams come true. The bad news, he may not have any friends when it's over. So let's take a look at Lightning McQueen and see if you see any pride in his attitude. Not exactly a best friend material, is he? Proverbs 11.2 says, when pride comes, then comes disgrace. And that's the reality we have to understand as we look at our pride this morning, the pride of Joseph. Pride is followed by disgrace. And so we have to realize that there's consequences. For lightning, it means that he's been pushing the limits, trying to get by with as little as possible, trying to do things his way. And as he pushes these limits further and further, trying to claim the big sponsorship to win the big championship because it ends up being a tiebreaker. Ends up being a tie, and there's a tiebreaker race that they have to do, and they have to drive all the way across the, the country. Something pretty crazy happens, and Lightning ends up in a completely different place than he thought he would. So let's bring you up to speed on that story, and let's take a look 
at another clip. Pride has consequences, does it not? Turn to the person next to you and say, pride has consequences. It did for lightning, and it surely does for Joseph as well. Starting here on page uh, 29 of the story. I want to take a look at what happens when Joseph's pride continues to get in the way of his relationship with his brothers. Joseph went after his brothers and found them, but they saw him in the distance. And before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Now let's kill him and throw him into one of those cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. Remember, this is God's chosen family. Aren't they supposed to have it all together? And as they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead, their camels loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh. They're on their way to take them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on. So when the Midianite merchants came by, the brothers pulled Joseph out of the cistern, sold him for 20 shekels, and they took him to Egypt. Pride indeed has consequences. Now, as I mentioned in uh, Proverbs 11.2, it talks about pride and then there's disgrace, but I didn't get a chance to finish that verse at all. It goes on to say that with humility comes wisdom. And remember what I said about God having a plan, despite the way that we may veer off the course, despite the way that we may think that we have it all together, God has a way of bringing us humility and wisdom. So as we look at now the next page and what Joseph is going on as he ends up there it says, Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. And this is a key verse in this entire passage. The Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered and he lived in the house of the Egyptian master. When his master saw the Lord was with, in, with, with him, that the Lord gave him success in everything he did. Joseph found favors and be, in his eye and became his attendant. He put him in charge of his household to the point where he didn't have to worry about anything. See, as we look at the story of Joseph and we start out with Joseph's pride, as he makes this transition to Potiphar's house, what we can also see, we can see two things. One, God is at work in the story, just as he is in your and my story today. God also, though, seems to be changing something in Joseph. He's already moved on from being this spoiled kid, this spoiled teenager. He's not trying to escape. Instead, he's working hard. He's trying to earn trust, and he's doing a good job. But as fate would have it, life strikes again for Joseph. And as uh, an interesting situation arises with his master's wife, he ends up getting framed and sent to prison because he won't sleep with her. So if you're in Joseph and you're in prison right now, you're in Potiphar, your former master's prison, for something you did not do because you were sold into slavery by your own flesh and blood, what are you thinking at this point? What are you thinking about? You thinking about revenge? You thinking, why me? Frustration, anger, even how the dream of life has come to an end. We don't know exactly what Joseph thought about, but we know 
that he was a busy guy and even busier than Joseph was God. Because on the next page of the story, <coughs> we learn that by while Joseph was there in prison, God again was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor. So that the warden put Joseph in charge of everything to do in the prison. Because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. When God has given Joseph this gift to be able to interpret dreams, it ends up coming in handy as well as he begins to prophesy and, and help a cupbearer and a baker that both had worked for Pharaoh understand that their dreams meant something, that their dreams are going to come true. And they get a chance to go to Pharaoh and they interpret a dream. And Joseph says, hey, when you get up there, we just tell them about me and I'll, I want to get out of here. I'm, not, I'm here for the wrong reasons. I was falsely accused. But when the guy gets up there, he absolutely forgets about it. And so Joseph is back where he's been the last few years. He's waiting in jail with no results. And we don't know exactly how long, but I know in this story, we're not talking about days or weeks or even months. We're talking about years of waiting. How would you be holding up waiting for two years? Because that's exactly what it says when Joseph gets his next chance to talk to Pharaoh. Two years went by and Pharaoh had a dream. Two years, that's a long time to wait. I have trouble even waiting for a couple minutes. I mean, think about how much time we spend maybe at a grocery store or a Target or something trying to get into the shortest line because we don't want to wait the extra two minutes for the person in front of us to check out. How much time or how often do you find yourself at a stoplight changing lanes so you can be the first one to go? We are not a group of people in this country or in our society that love to wait and yet that's exactly what God has Joseph doing, years at a time. And it's probably because God knows that once we wait long enough, we're forced back to trust in him. Because this waiting has done something to Joseph. It's transformed him into a different kind of person. Because when he finally gets his day, his day in court with Pharaoh... Pharaoh has a dream that needs to be interpreted and he gets up there. He doesn't say, yeah, let me do it for you. No, instead, he moves into a bigger story. He moves into God's story and he says, God can interpret this dream for you. Pharaoh said to him, I have a dream. No one can interpret it. And Joseph's response, I cannot do it. But God will give Pharaoh the answer that he desires. So Joseph is beginning to change. He's a transformed person. And although our friend Lightning McQueen has had a tough time living in this small town somewhere in the desert, he begins to have some experiences that begin to open his eyes to a bigger story around him as well. He begins to realize that he might just still have a thing or two to learn about life. So let's take a look at that. So these both of our characters in the story today, Joseph, as well as Lightning, they're beginning to change. God is beginning to work a plan in Joseph's life. Things are beginning to take a different turn. And as they become different people, things in life, their circumstances 
begin to change as well because Joseph interprets Pharaoh's dream and Pharaoh is impressed. He says, hey, that's pretty good. That's a good plan. Let's, yeah, there's going to be seven years of bumper crop. There's going to be seven years of famine. You seem to know what's going on, Joseph. I want to put you in charge. And so that's exactly what Pharaoh does. Joseph moves from hanging out in a prison cell to being number two in all of Egypt. You think God made that happen? Absolutely. The circumstances begin to change. And it turns out that Joseph's ability to, to dream and interpret dreams still is firing on all cylinders because it happens. Famine sweeps over the land and people from all over, including Joseph's own family, come to Egypt to get some food. But the interesting thing is when they come, he recognizes them, but they do not recognize him. And as Joseph sits there wondering and waiting, thinking about all of the years that he spent in this different course of life, far different than what he ever imagined, I can just imagine the thoughts running through his head, trying to decide on revenge, trying to figure out how to get even, trying to figure out if it's even worth it. And you can see him wrestle with it a little bit because he starts to trick his brothers. He's kind of messing with them, taking some of them prisoner and saying, you have to go back and bring this as proof that you're not just a spy here to overthrow our kingdom. But finally, as all this shuffling and this posturing and this, these antics go on, finally Joseph has had enough. As his brother, the very brother that sold him into slavery, Judah, is begging for his younger brother's life. He's overcome with emotion. And finally, he decides to take the mask off and to tell him who he really is. So on page 39 of the story, it says, Then Joseph said to his brothers, Come close to me. And when they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here. For two years now, there's been famine in the land. God has sent me ahead of you to save lives. Does that sound like a changed man or what? He goes from the story and the worldview of understanding his own glory to now moving into God's story and God's glory. And his brothers didn't say anything when he revealed himself because they were terrified. I mean, there he is. There's Joseph in the midst of all of this going on, he's got this opportunity to enact revenge on his brothers. He's got him right where he wants. And what does he do? Does he pull in the Marines to blow them to smithereens and give them exactly what they deserve? Absolutely not. No, instead, he gives them forgiveness. Because Joseph is a changed man. But the brothers, they just don't quite seem to get it. Just like I think in Lightning's world, when he becomes a changed person, people just don't seem to get it. But he is. Lightning McQueen indeed becomes a changed man, as you can see as we take a look at this final spot in the story. Don't embarrass me, Fillmore. But I love what he says at the end. There's a lot of love out there. And isn't that the mark of God taking our pride from us? and turning us around to look at his story. A lot of love. Unexpected love in unexpected ways. God has a way 
of using even the most prideful of us to do incredible things. Listen to what Joseph says. Even Esther, he's forgiven his brothers. And his father and him have caught up. They've been reunited. And after his father has died, his brothers again, worried that Joseph is going to hold a grudge. They're unable to accept his forgiveness, to believe it. It's that radical. This is what he says. He says, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, he's telling his brothers. And I don't know if he's whispering this or if he's shouting it at him. But he says, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. To accomplish what is now being done. The saving of many lives. Unexpected love at an unexpected time. I had the opportunity in one of my first days back here as an Iowan with uh, two of my kids. One was in utero as we moved back, as I said earlier. And it was the first time being back in Iowa in a year. And I thought, I had the day with my kids. My wife was off doing some other stuff. And I thought, what is the one thing that we could go do that would just be Iowan? You know, you go to the state capitol, you could do some stuff like that. I said, no, we're going to go to the farm. Because I grew up on a farm an hour north of here. And I wanted to give my kids a sense of what, what it's like to be out there. And we go out into this field and we're playing in the cornfield and I loved it. Partly because my kids are insanely high energy and it's impossible to keep them in any sort of confined space for a long period of time. So I drove them into a cornfield that's a mile by a mile and we drove down the road that goes in the center and we got out of the car and what do you think they did? They took off and I didn't even care at first. Because eventually I thought they would come back and as we're playing in this cornfield, I'm like, okay, they're going to come back, right? I'm just kind of hanging out. I didn't really want to go through the fields and I'm kind of trying to look. And, and as time goes by and time goes by, I'm beginning to wonder, where are they? And I began to get more and more anxious and finally I panicked and I dove into the cornfield and I started running through. And as I'm walking through, I'm getting more and more nervous all I can see are these corn leaves and all I can hear is the rustle of these plants as I'm trying to run through them, just trying to find my kids. And finally, I was so worried and so panicked that I just stopped. And in that moment, I heard one of the sweetest noises. I think one of the greatest noises God ever invented. What do you think that was? The sound of two little kids having the time of their life, just pure and utter joy. They loved it. I hated it. <laughs> I had no idea where they were. And as I'm thinking about these kids, what I'm going to do to them after I get a hold of them, <laughs> the thought pops in my head. You know, they're shorter than I am. Here I am walking through these corn plants and all I can do is get hit in the face with the leaves of these plants. What would it look like if I stepped down? If I got on their level and I kneeled down, I kind of crouched down like this and I looked around and this whole other world opened up and there were my kids running and screaming with tons of space and I could see them, they could see me and it just made me think. It wasn't me 
In fact, it wasn't them that needed to change. It was me. And it was my perspective. And as we look at the circumstances in our life, we look at where God has us in the midst of our story right now. Is it possible that this morning our circumstances, our perspective of those circumstances need to change? Because God's plan does not always make sense. Amen? In fact, we have no idea, but God comes to us in those moments and he says, trust me. I think God says a lot to a lot of us. I know it doesn't make sense right now, but I need you to trust me. It made no sense to the rest of the world when I sent my son to the cross for you. But I need you to trust me. Wherever you're at today, I need you to trust me. And that's why we gather as a community here to worship God because he knows what he's doing and because we can trust him. So as we stand together right now to worship the God who knows what he's doing, let's give him the glory. Let's give him the praise because he's been here from the beginning and he will continue to walk us through. Amen.